feature and from what you tell us and cards and letters and phone calls one of the more popular things we do on the show left right and center today uh, we have bob metz with us who's a regular panelist Good morning jim nice to have you and marion boyd who was here last week and it's great to have you back thanks jim i had a number of people comment about how nice it was to hear you again have you out in public and doing things and that's great so oh that's nice ni to hear nice to have you as part of the program and we hope that Marianne was going to be able to join us uh, from time to time in the future as well. We'd certainly always look forward to that. Earlier in the program today, we had a discussion with uh, former London Police Chief Julian Fantino, who is just wrapping up along with his uh, fellow association members. The uh, I don't know if it's an annual meeting, but it's the meaning of the Association Ontario, Ontario Association of Chiefs of Police. They're up in Thunder Bay, and they get together on a, in a timely manner. Uh, from time to time to discuss issues of interest to police forces across the province and sometimes beyond. Um, two of the concerns that Chief Fantino raised this morning, one was about biker gangs and what do we do about them, and the other one was about the SIU. And I thought this morning uh, it would be interesting to me, and I hope it's interesting to you, our listeners, as well, to uh, perhaps engage my two guests in a discussion of the role of the police. Um, certainly, uh, Marion Boyd is, is uniquely qualified to do that, having been the Attorney General of the province of Ontario and the person in charge of the SIU, which is one of the sore points with the Chiefs of Police. Marion, I'm going to start with you. Um, well, I'm not going to start with you, but I want to lead off with you. Um, Julian said this morning that, the and you know this, the police have a real concern over the way the SIU handles these cases. Not that they object to civilian overview, but that they're concerned that there's, there seems to be a presumption of guilt until proven innocent uh, for a police officer who's, a, who's selected as a subject officer, uh, which is direct, uh, directly opposite to our normal procedure, which is you're innocent until proven guilty, and that there is an element of politics involved in this, although not as I made the point earlier, not necessarily party politics, but power politics within there. What can you tell us about the SIU and the kind of experiences that you had with it? Well, first of all, Jim, I'd like to say I don't think the chiefs of police are against civilian oversight, but I certainly think the general public, having heard some of the police union uh, representatives speaking, would make an assumption that the police were against civilian oversight. Mm -hmm. um, I think uh, when uh, the Liberal government put the SIU in place with the new Police Act changes in 1990, we got the responsibility of implementing some of those changes. And one of the sore points in the uh, act as it stands uh, was the issue of the uh, duty to, uh, to cooperate for police officers, which does run quite contrary, in my view, to their charter rights. Mm -hmm police officers, we ask them to go out there into the public and to respect the charter rights mm -hmm. of every citizen with whom they come in contact. And yet in our own police act, they have a duty to cooperate that doesn't necessarily give them charter protection. Mm -hmm. And that has been a very sore point and ought to be. Now the protocol that we were in the process of, of negotiating uh, when we left office and that this government uh, uh, finally seems to have, have negotiated uh, deals with this issue uh, in, in the way that you've talked about. They say that a subject officer, an officer who may become the subject of a criminal charge, mm -hmm. does not have to cooperate. That's to protect the charter rights of that mm -hmm. police officer. And, and no presumption of guilt by doing no that. No presumption of guilt right. by doing that. It's a protective mechanism. Mm -hmm. A witness officer, however, does have a duty to cooperate and is required to, to hand over notebooks uh, to to uh, talk to the investigators to, to deal with that. I, it's, it's an effort at a compromise. One of the real issues is if we dress people up, 
We teach them how to use guns. We give them the opportunity to carry guns. We give them a great deal of authority in our society. How do we make sure that we have an, a way to deal with them if there is an abuse of that power? I think all of us ought to be very concerned about that. And Ontario has been a leader in terms of the issue of civilian oversight. The biggest problem I think that the SIU has had is that it hasn't had enough money to do the job properly to make sure that it has sufficient numbers of investigators available mm -hmm. to do it in a timely fashion. Uh, when I was Attorney General, the person, the first person who uh, had been the, uh, uh, sorry, the, the, the second person who, 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 who dealt with the agency, took a very extreme point of view on this duty to cooperate and wouldn't close cases unless police officers were prepared to speak. He left the job and we have since had a much a smoother uh, operation of it. But they still need more money. I argued very hard in cabinet for more money for the SIU, wasn't successful as Attorney General. I think the uh, previous Attorney General, Charles Harnick, probably ran into some of the same kinds of issues. Unless you fund these kinds of civilian oversight operations appropriately, you are always going to be accused of not having timely investigations, not having thorough investigations, and that will always sour the relationship between the Special Investigations Unit and the police officer uh, unions and the chiefs of police. Bob, I want to ask you about your, 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 your view on this whole idea of civilian overview. I, I, I'm assuming you're not opposed to civilian overview of the police, but there's a number of, of different dynamics at work here. When you look at this issue and the chiefs of police and their very outspoken opposition to the SIU, what, what, what do you I, see? You know, the term civilian overview sounds very, uh, you know, motherhood and apple pie-ish in a way as though we as individual citizens had some input to this thing but what we're really talking about is a is a bureaucratic overview uh, or or review board of some sort that runs very much like a tribunal which is why when you go before a tribunal you are presumed guilty until proven innocent that's how they all work mm -hmm. um, I think Jeff uh, Schlemmer when he was on the show was making it very clear that that's common to all tribunals. Anything that works outside our common law court system works almost on the opposite principle. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Ma Marion's quite right when she points out that, that the police officers in our society are, are committed to, you know, the constitutional rights but aren't perhaps accorded a lot of those rights themselves when, they're, when they come before one of these tribunals. But I think if you talk to most people in most countries, about their police. You know, most people are afraid of the police in their countries, in most countries in the world. In Canada, that's not the case, although it seems to be getting worse and worse as time goes on. Well, we're all a little nervous when that red light goes on in our rearview mirror, but other well, than that... Well, we're, we're, we're not talking about that kind of thing. We're talking about, you know, very serious yes. uh, police abuse, basically abuse of the state. Yeah. And a police officer is a representative of the state, and, you know, this is one area that... that is for me one of the three legitimate functions of government mm -hmm. is is the police the courts and the justice and military system that's why we have a government is so that we can govern the use of force in society that's it's not so much that government is force it, it is that force is what we govern mm -hmm. when we put a government together mm -hmm. and we decide when it's appropriate to use it and when and when not and then we have to make rules to make sure that everyone under that system is accorded equal rights and equal protections under the law and not subject to any abuses of that force, which are going to happen in any country, but you should have recourse.
One of the one of the real issues, though, I think, Robert, and I think you've made the same mistake, is that you're equating the SIU with the disciplinary process that happens within police forces themselves. That's where a tribunal comes in. The SIU's responsibility is to investigate an incident where there has been serious injury or death as a result of a police action. And they then look at that investigation and make a determination whether or not charges should be laid under the criminal code against an officer or officers in that incident. And then it goes through the court process. If they determine that there is no grounds for laying charges, then very often the person goes through that disciplinary process through the uh, police services board, through the chief of police and the police services board at the local level. And that's where the tribunal issue comes in. But the SIU's responsibility is to determine whether or not criminal charges ought to be laid. And, of course, we know, and we've seen this in the courts uh, consistently, where those charges are laid, very often the courts, a jury or a judge sitting without a jury, very often determine that there are no grounds uh, or uh, determine that the person is, is uh, not guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Then where are the charge ori charges originating from, this presumption of guilt? As Jim said in the opening comments there, that there's this feeling amongst police officers. Are they incorrect in their feelings as well? Uh, well, I would never say anybody's incorrect. I'm sure they feel that way, but in fact, there's no basis for that feeling. But you did make the point, Marion, that, that, that they have not, uh, traditionally, although you, you didn't like this, but that there, for a certain certain period there, that they were not afforded the same protections under exactly, the Charter. Exactly, and they should have been. And, so is there and, a holdover and, from that, well, do you that's think? The point I think there is. There's an, attitude, there's an attitude uh, toward that, and, mm. there's, and there's a concern about that. Now, I should really say that the major locus of concern has been the Metropolitan Toronto Police. Mm -hmm. um, although there have been other instances in which uh, people may not have agreed uh, with, with criminal charges being laid, um, the, the major opposition has come from the police union in Toronto. Um, and uh, although the other unions may go along with that, you don't see the same level of hysteria, the yeah. targeting of politicians, the uh, on police service boards, and that sort of thing uh, that you do in in uh, in Toronto. Well, that's true of almost any unionized environment. I mean, whenever one of their members is being put under the gun for anything, pardon the pun, uh, the unions complain vociferously. I mean, they don't like to even have their members well, subject to any sorts of. Uh, and they're required under the Labor Act to 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 represent their members and to defend their members. I mean, that's the requirement. Otherwise, they can be charged by uh, members of their union under the Labor Act for non-representation. So, sure. I mean, their job is to to be as protective as possible. But to take the kind of political action that the Metropolitan Toronto Police Association has taken. Uh, specifically targeting different uh, uh, politicians, making very extreme comments about civilian oversight, which has happened under two different leaders in, in the last uh, 10 years, uh, is, is unusual. We certainly haven't seen that same level of, uh, of, of uh, aggressiveness uh, among the other police associations, although they, they share the same view around the charter rights issues. Well, they mentioned in, in the, one of the reports I got from, this, from uh, the people up in Thunder Bay that they were kind enough to send down, Chief uh, Taganuzzi, I think his name mm -hmm. is, in Thunder Bay, uh, had, had experienced this once and said, and I'm paraphrasing, it was the worst experience of his professional life. One of his officers was charged. Mm -hmm. So there is a concern, as you say, the other forces are also concerned, although perhaps not quite as uh, politically active about what it as the What was the Trump. process before the SIU? 
Well, there was very little process. Uh, uh, if you remember, Claire Lewis was brought in, in in Toronto. Again, all of this originated around the Toronto Police Force because there had been a number of incidents and strong complaints, particularly around what were seen as uh, incidents uh, that were racially motivated. Uh, Claire Lewis was brought in, I believe it was 1980 maybe 85, it was certainly under the previous Conservative government, to look at this situation, look at possibilities for civilian oversight. And they set up a police complaints commission. He was the commissioner of police complaints. And, um, and, and there were there continued to be some concerns. And as I recall, it was 1988, 89, the major issue being uh, police chases that resulted in death and injury to civilians, uh, and uh, um, uh, Joan Smith, then the Solicitor General, had Claire Lewis do another report out of which arose the Police uh, Services Act changes that resulted in the SIU. One of the concerns had been the police forces were doing the investigation of their own members themselves that there was no arm's lengthness. The same officers who had to share the same locker room, share the same shifts, might be investigating fellow officers. And that in very serious matters, in very serious matters, uh, where there's death or injury to a, to a civilian, that that was seen as not appropriate. And that was why the SIU was set up as a special investigations unit. It was expected that there would only be probably 35, 40 cases in a year for them to deal with, and that was why they were funded at the level that they were. As it turned out, uh, there ended up being in, in virtually every year, I think, 100 plus cases that were coming along. And because of this issue of non-cooperation, which was just a consistent problem in those early years, uh, many of the cases were held over year after year. And it wasn't until we replaced Howard Morton as the as the head of the SIU, and managed to to work with the the chiefs and with the various uh, representatives of the police unions, the crown attorneys, and so on, we managed to get a protocol set up to offer some of those charter protections in a more appropriate way. We began to be able to deal with some of those cases. My my belief is, and I I never believed that it was necessary to require someone to uh, deal with an investigator um, because these are, these are police officers who deal with murders, with, with accidental deaths all the time. And as police officers, they know very well that a suspect can refuse to cooperate with the police. Mm -hmm. And the police then make a determination, do I have enough evidence to lay a charge even though I haven't had a statement from this suspect? And they go ahead and charge. There are very, very few people who are accused of, of murder, manslaughter, uh, uh, negligence causing death who cooperate with the police if they're, if they're ordinary citizens. And the police officers were saying very clearly, if you have grounds to lay charges, lay charges. We'll take our chance in court. And of course, the history is that their chances are very good in court, that they will not be found guilty because the extenuating circumstances mitigate the situation. We have to mitigate our situation momentarily here with some important messages from our sponsors. We hope you'll stay with us. This is Left, Right and Center on 1290 CJBK. Again, our lines are working and not working sometime this morning. If you're trying to join us, and we are, you're always welcome on the program, 643-1290, star 1290 on the CanTel. If you get that funny, fast, busy signal, keep trying because we want to hear from you too. 
This is Left, Right, and Center on Talk of the Town. I'm Jim Chapman with my guests, Marion Boyd and Robert Metz. And uh, again, our, we're having a little trouble with the phones today. If you're trying to get through, we apologize. Uh, if you're getting that fast, busy signal, which we're told is happening for some people, please do keep trying. If there's something you want to say or something you want to add to our discussion, you're more than welcome here at 643-1290 or star-1290. That would be the Cantel cellular number. I'd like to change the focus a little bit, if I might, to another issue that Chief Fantino raised this morning, and that is the biker gangs and the great concern about the biker gangs. The chiefs of police have suggested that what they would like to see, although Chief Fantino acknowledged that it's a long way from fruition, they would like to see, ultimately, that these organizations be declared criminal organizations and that people be prohibited from, as he put it, advertising their membership in a criminal organization. Specifically, they'd be prevented from wearing the colors. I raised the question that, well, isn't that just going to drive them underground? And he acknowledged, well, yes, obviously you're not going to see the colors again. But he felt that, and I guess the chiefs feel, that the very fact that these guys are riding around proclaiming themselves as Hell's Angels or Satan's Choice or so on, with the public knowledge that these organizations are criminal organizations, that it's, it serves to intimidate the public even more than perhaps they are, you know, might otherwise be. Um, Bob, let's start with you this time. Can we, in a free society, can we make those kinds of restrictions or distinctions and say your organization is a criminal organization you're a hell's angels member well let's suppose i'm not a hell's angel member and i put on a jacket that says hell's angels on it and i walk down the street what was mr fantino suggesting should be done to me well i'm i'm guessing and i don't know because i didn't put it to in those specifics i'm guessing that the fact of wearing those colors would be an offense whether you were a member or not. That's it? Just wearing the colors and whether you've had a criminal record or not? I don't whether know how, you've ever hurt anybody? I don't know how else they do that. Whether you've ever committed a crime? Well, I don't know how else they do that. And again, I, I, I didn't ask him that specific question, but my very clear impression was that the offense would be wearing the colors. Now, you must recognize, though, Bob, if you walk down the street wearing the colors and you're not a member, you're in more danger from the Hells Angels than you are from the police. <laughs> Isn't that right, Mary? That's for sure. Yeah. Uh, but the issue is... You know, if, if, if these are criminal organizations, why are the police not simply attacking the crime itself rather than, I mean, somebody's advertising that I'm a member of a criminal organization. I'd say, gee, thanks for doing my job for me. I'll be following you around for a little while and we'll see what you're up to. But they do know uh, who they are. I well, mean, you know, I'd like to know who they are, too. Mm -hmm. As a member of the public, if I see a guy with a Hells Angels badge on, I'll, I'll keep away from him. If, I, if he's not allowed to wear it and I'm brushing up against him, who knows what's going to happen mm -hmm. to me. I, I don't see this as workable from any point of view, and, I, and, I, and it's a direct violation of any fundamental rights of freedom of expression, regardless of what you might think about the crime that most of these groups get into because of stupid laws we have in the first place, mm -hmm. like drug laws, which is the big thing that fuels organized crime. So whether it's Hell's Angels or the Mafia, which both get into the same kind of crime, also kill people. I mean, one set might wear suits and not advertise themselves, and the other set of people are a little more blatant about it. These are the same problems in society. And I don't think you can treat one different from the other. Marion, as a, a former Attorney General, do you disagree with that at all? Is there a way we can deal with it along these lines, or is this the wrong approach? It sounds tempting, you know, and I think I think I can appreciate why any police chief or any police officer, for that matter, would want to find some kind of a, a quick fix to what is, in their view, a very serious problem. Um, and we certainly know um, from a lot of the celebrated cases that have come along that mm -hmm. there is a, a heavy involvement in the drug trade, um, that uh, it, it leads to uh, a really serious uh, personal 
uh, dangers to to people who who try to rat on anybody mm -hmm. who's in one of those organizations and that sort of thing. I mean, that's all true. But I I tend to agree with Robert that uh, you you when you paint with that kind of a broad brush. Uh, first of all, I'm not sure that that kind of law would ever survive a charter challenge. No, I don't, I, think, I don't so. think it would. Uh, it sounds very attractive. I mean, it's it's like this uh, mandatory drug uh, testing for welfare people. It'll never pass a charter mm -hmm. uh, trial. In fact, there's already case law in the Imperial Oil case, for example, one of the banks where mm -hmm. you can't you can't even test your employees for drugs or alcohol. So, uh, when when it's for their own safety in terms of their work. So, I mean, that's not going to work. So, I mean, police chiefs often come up with ideas around this that wouldn't wouldn't survive charter challenges and I think we have to name why they do that mm -hmm. they're frustrated they're frustrated at the cost of the heavy undercover uh, operations that they have to do to infiltrate these very very tight organizations whether it's mafia based or whether it's uh, uh, biker based whether they're combined whether in fact there is any real difference uh, one one might wonder sometimes but but they are frustrated about the lack of resources to do that pro appropriately and they're certainly uh, committed as we all know uh, to stamping out the drug trade, which, uh, uh, frankly, they spend an awful lot of time on the marijuana issue and a lot of time, money on the marijuana issue. And there are many of us who really feel that you should be dealing with the very, very uh, tough problem of hard drugs mm -hmm. and, and, and saving some of those efforts that, that now go uh, to, to mere possession uh, uh, or, or recreational use of marijuana. There's another uh, issue here, too, that, that doesn't get talked about much, and I, I'm, I assume that both of you are aware of this I know you're you're plugged into a lot of this. The police don't talk about it very often, but there's a tremendous cost paid in terms of individuals too, not just the the dollar and cent cost for police officers. Police officers who are involved in undercover narcotics work, the burnout factor is incredibly high, and and the uh, you know the the after effects for many of these officers are quite debilitating. Well, I think in those areas particularly is where you see the the most loss of respect for the law because the opportunities for corruption for uh, you know, all kinds of issues that arise when you're trying to just control behavior of other people that, you know, the behavior in and of itself doesn't affect anyone else in society, you know, other than the individual involved. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think it's that commitment to stamping out drugs that, that is putting the heat on everywhere and creating a lot of the but drugs. Bob, you know, well, crime yeah, but, but you know what one of the problems is with that, and you know the, how I feel We've about never this stamped thing. out drugs. No, no, never I understand. It's happen, and it never did. I understand. I said, you know, I've made the position before that I think if we have people with a serious, and, and I'm just speaking my opinion, people with a serious drug problem today have a medical problem and should, it should be dealt with as a medical Absolutely. problem. Absolutely. I agree. We have, we've turned it into a criminal problem. Right. However, one of the trafficking is a different issue. But but we you know if if there was no market we'd have no traffickers I suppose. But that but that's 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 where so, I'm so well, no, but that, no but that's where I'm going though. That's okay. where I'm going. Here. Let me finish this. There are many people who say no, even though we recognize what you're saying has some validity to it. That people who are seriously addicted to drugs have a medical problem. However, how many people that might develop that medical problem are 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 kept away from it because they're concerned about the drug law? This is the big argument. People say we dare not decriminalize these things because we we might have a sudden flood. People today who think, gee, I wonder what cocaine would be like, or I wonder what heroin would be like. Well, I'm certainly not going to try it because it's illegal. 
it wasn't illegal anymore, what if they did try it? What if we suddenly ended up with two or three or four or five or ten times the drug population we have today? Well, if that were the case, that would have been the way most people were before we had our first drug laws in, in, in the early part of this century. No, okay. not necessarily, because no. we, we didn't no. have the supply. No, the supply people wasn't. Did. People, people supply didn't have was the Cocaine was in regular use. Uh, we called it snuff. We called it all sorts of other little little things. Women more used it than men because women were prohibited from, from drinking alcohol, mm -hmm. and the men stuck to the alcohol, which, by the way, is, of all the drugs in our society, the most powerful. Yeah. Uh, it's almost, I'm almost sad that alcohol is the one legal drug we have because everyone judges all the other drugs by alcohol. Yeah. And I can't put any other drug in the, in, the, in the same category as alcohol, particularly for uh, making people totally change their moods, lose their minds, become violent. Um, I, had a doctor on, I had a doctor on not too long ago who specialized in addiction, and he made the point. I thought it was a very interesting point. He said, in, in, in a general sense, and there are certainly specific uh, exceptions when you seriously abuse the drugs, but he said, alcohol is the only, quote, recreational drug we have that is guaranteed to kill you. That alcohol destroys your brain cells, wrecks your body, and it's very, very easy to kill yourself with alcohol. And I forget what he said. Well, something. except for tobacco. Yeah, but it's a longer term. He's talking about if you, an overdose, an alcohol yeah, overdose, overdose yeah. is oh, sure. is relatively easy to do. Oh yeah. And and the amount it takes to get you intoxicated is a is a much shorter distance from that to the amount it takes to kill you than virtually any other drug that's in recreational use. Except maybe crack. Marijuana is impossible to overdose on, and it's illegal. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, getting back though to your issue, um, Jim. Uh, because I was under police protection for a number of, of years and, and the people who were looking after me were people who all had done their stint in terms of undercover mm -hmm. operations. You'd asked about the cost for police officers. It's, it's enormous. Yeah. Um, in terms of, uh, I mean, you give up a normal lifestyle, you have to adopt a lifestyle that, generally speaking, is extremely foreign to you. Mm -hmm. uh, it's dangerous uh, if you get found out in, in many cases. Uh, you spend a lot of time with people that you would certainly not choose to spend your time with. Yeah. Uh, you very often uh, have to participate in actions that you don't approve of mm -hmm. in order to remain one of the, the yeah. gang. Um, and uh, in, in the long run, you are constantly on edge because you have to always be aware of the necessity not to entrap somebody. Mm -hmm. and, and so it's the tension and pressure build up. Many of these uh, folks find in, in later life that they do have heart problems. One of these gentlemen, uh, in fact, uh, died at uh, under 60, a uh, massive, massive heart, heart uh, problem that had been undetected, even though he'd looked after himself very well. Uh, problems of, of, of overeating, of getting addicted themselves in terms of alcohol mm -hmm. to keep up with the gang, yeah. all of that kind of thing uh, cost a great deal. And I, I, I agree with you. I think one of the issues for poli the police, whether it's chiefs or the, the uh, rank and file members uh, around this kind of activity is the long-term cost for the person who's doing Marianne, it. Marion, where do we go, and, and Robert too, where do we go then? And it seems to me, and the more you, I mean, you read and you study about it, there's no doubt in my mind that the public attitude towards drugs is changing. I think definitely, and here's an example of former Attorney General of Ontario suggesting that we need to take another look at our marijuana laws. Just as an, And I think that's a very positive thing, and I applaud you for that. I agree. Um, but that wouldn't have happened 10, 15, 20 years ago. And we now have medicinal use of, of marijuana exactly. and, and looking at ways to do that. Yes, I think you're right that that... that, that area has changed. But I think there's also a groundswell out there that I 
am reading about and hearing and talking to people about, and that is the idea that the criminalization of drugs, the so-called war on drugs, and I hate that term, and so do the police officers, most of the ones I know. Absolutely. But that it's not working, and that we need to recognize that, that many, many, many of these people, in fact, probably most of them, have a mental, psychological, physical problem, and we should be dealing with it on a, from a medical point of view. But having said that... Who are that, you talking about? The, the users of drugs? Yeah. Um, would you say that about every user of alcohol? No. Why not? Uh, because I have a drink once a month. Oh, I'm, so a, you, I'm a user so of alcohol. Because you're a user, you exempt yourself from the general class of users. I don't think that's true. I think, I think the I... average user of drugs is as average as you and me. Mm -hmm. Is is can be found at the corporate levels. Can be a doctor. Could be a lawyer. Could All right, be let me a, rephrase because be I don't anybody, disagree. Let me it could okay. Be any drug. All right, let me just so let, let me rephrase that. Let's rephrase. Here. If there's a problem with these individuals, it is a medical problem, not a criminal problem. What, what happens oh, right I now? There. What happens right now, of course, is that the dependency. I mean, the way that people are recruited into the trafficking area is 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 to get them dependent in one way or another, or trapped in some other way mm -hmm. through blackmail of one one form or another, or through you know funding necessary things for families. People get get hooked, mm -hmm. and then they 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 get they get involved. Or the simple lifestyle, counterculture lifestyle issues that are very appealing to to people who are feeling very restricted and and not very validated in our general society. So, I think I think we have to look at um, it, how you can can prevent um, the entrapment of people into a criminal mm -hmm. behavior through an addictive mode. Uh, that that needs to be there. I well, mean, the first thing you got to do is get rid of the law that makes them criminals by the very fact that they are engaged in that behavior to begin well, with. Well, you know that um, I wouldn't agree with you in in terms of of hard drugs like cocaine and heroin and and crack and and opium and and so on. Do you on. think people who are um, using those drugs should be in jail? No, I agree with Jim. I well, mean, then I think. Do, where do you I disagree think, with me then? If that's, that's what I was saying. But that doesn't mean I think they shouldn't be against the law. The trafficking in them is the issue for me. When you traffic, you deliberately try to hook people into an addictive habit so that you can make money. Well, that's because of the law. You can't hook somebody into something if they're not afraid of going to the law or to another source for the drug that, that, that they need. Milton Friedman made this argument very strongly. He said one of the big reasons we have addiction rates growing is because of drug laws. Because because of exactly what Marion is saying right now, someone can hook you and you have no other place to go. You can't go down to the pharmacy to get your drugs for 50 cents a piece instead of $200 mm -hmm. a shot. So it's therefore, very hard. It's very so hard to get people to accept problem. methadone yeah. treatment, for example. Yeah, it is, but there are, there, no, are no, it there are situations in Britain, I saw a show not too long ago in Britain, where they, they're not a methadone. They're giving them heroin. Right. They're giving them measured amounts, and they found two things that were interesting. Uh, and I don't know what the percentages are, and I'm not sure they matter. There was one group of people that they were doing this for who took the heroin on a regular basis and lived basically normal, normal lives. lives sure. Go to work. But there was another group that... And, and consistently trying to reduce the amount. Exactly, yes. exactly. But still, while they were doing this, these people were, were well able to function. Many of them had been in a criminal lifestyle and mm -hmm. were no longer. had a, and yep. one, one fellow, they had very productive job, family, whole thing. He was thrilled to death. Now, he, he had a hit in the morning and a hit at night, and that balanced his life out. But they had some other people, too. All they still wanted was the hit in the morning, the hit at night. They didn't want to go to work. They didn't want any responsibility. So there was still that, that and, and in fact, they would have had three or four hits during the day if they could have got it, but they weren't giving it to them. So there are still some people, Robert, I submit yep, to you, that you're are, always going to have that. It's problematic for them. Those are the people that are going to be a problem whether you've got laws or not. Yeah. 
Okay, so so they're a non-issue as far as whether we should make give the opportunity to the rest of the people not to be treated as criminals. That's, you know, if you're going after the sliver of people, and then you pass a law against the whole country and everybody in it who just, you know, uses marijuana a couple times or even has it as a habit, I don't see why we should be putting people in jail for that. There's, there's no justification for it at all. Well, I don't think there's if, much support uh, for it anymore. No, um, not in terms of marijuana. That's yeah. true. Yeah. But the same principle applies to other drugs. And we're not talking about legalizing heroin and putting it in the stores for sale. I, I like the Brit well, British approach. Yeah, but what, what about, I'm talking what about, the about drugs is getting like, rid of the mentality of prohibition and the problems that it creates. What about the drugs like, like crack cocaine and PCP, these drugs that, that we know do, in fact, it's, and never mind all the propaganda about reefer madness and that, these drugs do in many cases turn people into raving lunatics. Are they taking them because they can't get the more quote, benign drugs like heroin, for example? Well, you know, there is always that argument that one drug leads to another, but I never really bought it. I, I always used to think it was just the fact that that particular user didn't find that drug satisfying for what their craving was, so they carried on until they found the one that they, that they were looking for. Yeah. It's not that one led to the other. The others they mean, didn't even care about. Does that mean that we, if, we did, if we go this way, we'd have to legalize PCP as well for people who want that rush? Well, I'm not talking about legalizing. I'm not, or, or even decriminalizing. But, well, you'd have to, yeah. What, what is to be gained by putting them in a jail or, or something? Well, like that? As long as they're not creating any criminal problems. But, but, no, but let's, let's, go back, let's go back to the other issue. Um, you, you say that taking that methodology would stop the trafficking. And I say to you, no. The drug traffic in, in England, even with this kind of a program, and in, in Holland, where they have for a long time, well, for many, many years... Well, they have decriminalized in England. Marijuana is still illegal and all those but things. But they have all decriminalized in, 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 some other, in some other jurisdictions. Drug traffic still happens, and I, I believe very strongly, I want to say to you, Robert, I don't think simply making it a medical problem and, and decriminalizing the possession or the use, the simple possession or use, deals with the trafficking problem. I simply disagree with well, you. Well, I didn't say it would. I didn't say anything about well, that. Trafficking, trafficking would just become legal. And like, just like no, today, trafficking, trafficking in tobacco is done in variety stores. Trafficking in alcohol is done by the Ontario it is, government. It is. Trafficking in, uh, you know, or, and actually both of those are controlled by the government. That's right. And uh, so the government has a lot to gain by this. And, and, and even when government prohibits to the point through prices, where the price of alcohol is too high or the price of cigarettes are too high, we get a black market again. This is an economic thing. This is not a social thing. This is just people wanting to pay less for the same thing, just like you and I want to pay less when we go to the grocery store. But and by speaking you, of health You just problems, destroyed your own argument. How? By saying that it, there will always be an illegal traffic. No, I didn't say illegal. I said if you left. legalize it, you will always have the traffic. You said uh, that my argument would not eliminate the traffic. Of course, it wouldn't, because people would be using these things, and the traffic would even be if, illegal. Even if you had it, in, as you do in 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 uh, for cigarettes and 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 liquor, for example, are you suggesting it should be totally unregulated? Yes, marijuana. Yeah, sure. It grows as a weed in your backyard, and it's like tomatoes and asparagus and the rest of it. And, you know, wh why? Why would you What about it? heroin and opium and Well, heroin and, and opium, they and have to be processed in some way, much as tobacco does. But if someone, you know, you know, if someone was doing heroin or opium, as the Chinese did when they first came to the country to build a railway, and then they passed the opium laws against them to keep the Chinese out of the country, they were still being productive. They were still putting the railway together, but they couldn't get a, get find a way to get rid of this this group of people that was outworking the locals. But it seems to me there's a built-in problem here. Drug it, problem. What you're <laughs> suggesting, if the government does become quote the trafficker, 
Um, certainly governments have a great tendency to want to tax our, our recreational right. pleasures. And so I, I so, so they're going to do that. We know they're going to do that. And, and we're going to go through this. Well, if, I don't if think should, government should be in the drug business. Okay. I don't well, think we that know we should you have don't. an LCBO. But, 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 but that's what's going to, if it happens at all, that's going to be the first step. But then the problem is, how do you set the price? Because I think Marion's right. The market if, sets the price. Well, yeah, <laughs> but, if it's, but if it's too high, then the market it's goes. The way it does now, Marion. No, but and there'll <laughs> be illegal trafficking, just as there was for cigarettes and booze. But my, and if, if the government's now. running it, sure, because there's illegal trafficking in everything. That's that where I'm trying to get to. And including ordinary labor, like being a plumber. Or well, that's a, what I'm trying to get to. <laughs> if the government's there and sets these prices too high, you're still going to have the trafficking. Yes. How, how do we convince the government not to set the price that high? You tell the government not to set the price that high. You say you want lower taxes. You say you want more freedom. You say you want to make people more responsible for their choice. I want to make an important point here. Sure. If a person on drugs commits a crime and injures someone else or causes a problem, and the problem is a consequence of his drug use, in that circumstance, I would say the courts would have more power than they could possibly imagine today to be able to do something about that person's behavior in terms of his drug use, because that's the time you can address it and say, well, you've got to go in for some kind of rehabilitation. And although we know rehabilitation doesn't work in a lot of cases, then you can keep the pressure on them. Because to me, the objective of the justice system is to protect society. And that if someone's danger to society, even if it is because of drugs, then that's, that's the moment you act. You do not just do a blanket. But that's the end stage. I mean, I think Jim's right. Well, you I don't mean, put people in jail until they commit a crime. But you try to prevent them from, from developing these addictions. Okay, I'm going to be prevented from doing the show if we don't get a spot in here pretty quick. We'll be back right after this. More Left, Right, and Center with Marion Boyd and Bob Metz. Left, right, and center with Bob Metz and Marion Boyd. We've been talking about uh, drugs and, and, and uh, we're talking about a whole bunch of things. Today. That's what's fun about the show. You never quite know where it's going to go. Uh, Marianne, let me ask you then, if, let's take marijuana for example, um, I read a very interesting essay not too long ago by a professor whose name escapes me now, and it's a shame because I can't find the thing and I'd like to. His point was that he thought our marijuana laws were not all that unreasonable, provided nobody went to jail. And his reasoning was this. His reasoning was that we can identify some negatives to marijuana use. Now, Bob, you may disagree with this, but just work with me for a second. He said we can identify some negatives to it, and in some people it, it results in a loss of initiative and so on and so on. So there are some negatives to this. And memory loss. And memory loss, yeah, some of the other things. Um, his point was that he felt that society did not need to, quote, legalize it or even decriminalize it, that society was, in essence, doing the right thing by, say, fining people. Not putting him in jail. He was very adamant about it. Nobody should ever go to jail for it. But he said the idea of putting some low-level social prohibition on this was a positive one because it sent the message that, okay, this isn't going to kill you. This isn't going to lose the war for the Allies. But all things considered, your health considered and so on, society looks at this and says, you know, it's probably still not a very good idea. So if you're, if you're dumb enough to flaunt it and you get caught, the society is going to give it a figurative slap on the wrist. That's all. They're not going to beat you up. They're not going to lock you up. But he felt there was value to, to society maintaining this idea that, well, if you're going to do it, fine, but it's really not a good idea. And for God's sakes, don't be flaunting it. Don't be, you know, telling others, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Is there any value in that, do you think? Or should we just decriminalize it and say, listen, let's get on with the program? Well, I think there might be some value in that, and I think it, I think it along with the other range of possibilities, ought to be more openly spoken of than, than it is. I mean, it seems as though if anybody makes the suggestion uh, that we have to look at these laws and, and look at better ways of dealing with it, since we're 
obviously not dealing with it well. Mm. People immediately label you as being, you know, totally profligate and, and not, uh, uh, not concerned about the social problems that arise from uh, escapism, mm -hmm. which it basically Essentially, is. Yeah. Um, so I think we ought to be looking at that and, and looking at other things. I certainly don't think people should ever be jailed for simple possession of marijuana. Well, I think if someone that's disagrees nonsense. with both you and Jim over the fine issue and they don't want to pay the fine and they still shouldn't go to jail? Uh, well, there are, are real issues about people being jailed for, for non-payment of fines. Well, that's always the ways, ultimate consequence. There are ways that we can garnish their earnings. There are ways that we can garnish their, tax, uh, uh, their income tax returns and so on. There are ways that we can collect those fines without putting them in jail and costing ourselves more money as a result. But if they're not earning taxes, as most people claim most drug users don't, so... Well, I, I don't think, I certainly don't think that's true of marijuana users, to be perfectly blunt. I, I, well, I not think most, but not, I'm not sure most. There, there may be some. Or um, what about the ones like Chris Clay or the Mark Emery's who will just refuse to pay the fine on principle? Because, you know, the principle is basically this. Jim, if either you or Marion are using any kind of drugs in your home, I have no right to tell you that you can't or that I'm going to put a social prohibition on you. That wasn't a social prohibition. That's a legal one if mm -hmm. it's a fine. It's not mm -hmm. social. Mm -hmm. Social would be something very different. Um, and, and escapism, you know, that, that comes in many forms. Some, some people watch television for escapism. Some people eat for escapism. And eating is a far greater danger, I'm beginning to learn from all the doctors talking, than smoking mm -hmm. as a risk to your health, as to your diet. People, to many people, yes. Like it's, a, it's, it's a fourfold greater than smoking risk. Um, and we're not putting the same emphasis in that area. But, like we're moving. but, I, don't, but we're I don't want to see the government saying that I can't have my bag of chips or that I can't, uh, you know, eat my junk food. I don't think that's the role of government. Well, you don't see much role for government I at do. all. I see. A, I, I see a, a, the government is there to prevent you and I from imposing each other's views upon each other. That's why we have government. In a free country, anyway. It's in the non-free countries that some people are allowed to impose their views on the others, and that's where you always will have a conflict, you will always have unresolved issues, and you're going to, you know, country falling apart. Okay, we'll be right back after this. Left, right, and center with Bob Metz and Marion Boyd, and we've got, uh, phones are working again, folks, up and down today. Paul's with us. Hi, Paul. Hi. Yes, sir. Uh, my question is, uh, the way people are talking about the drugs, if it's okay for older people to use over 18 and whatnot, what's to stop the uh, 10, 11 year old kids from starting up? If it's okay for the older ones, why wouldn't it be okay for them? Well, I haven't heard anybody comment on that yet. Uh, I, I would guess that the answer would be, although it's not, a, it's not maybe a satisfactory answer, the same reason why the underage kids are not or shouldn't be drinking alcohol. Because, because of the formative years and because of the, uh, of the uh, real effect on, on, on growing bodies of this sort of thing. I, but I think it's a good question that you're asking because obviously uh, in terms of smoking, we're, we're uh, going into more regulation of smoking because we know of the health hazards that are there. So, I mean, I think this is a whole area that needs to be looked at around, around prevention of addictions. How do we do that effectively? Exactly. I smoke. I'm addicted to it. Um, I don't want to be okay to smoke marijuana and have my children see me smoke marijuana and think, well, it's okay. But you, I smoke cigarettes, so they, right now I'm trying to talk them out of smoking cigarettes. But, Paul, you know, you know, and with all due respect, you've got a problem here beyond your addiction. Mm -hmm. You've got a problem in that you don't want to stop smoking. 
No, I, I do, no. but, you know... No, I, no, you don't. Right. No, sir, you do not want to stop smoking. If you've got kids and you care about their health, you will stop smoking. If you go to your doctor, they can get you over that hump. Now, I'm not, I'm not picking on you at all. Right. I'm, ju I'm just saying you got to be careful when people say, you know, I can't stop, but I'm telling my kids not to but, smoke. You can stop. But, Jim, I, I think we need to really look at the addictive behavior. There's a report in the paper this morning that the Ontario Medical Association has finally come down talking about the more appropriate use of nicotine substitutes yes. and that sort of thing. Yep. And that's exactly the kind of discussion we have to be having. We know that, that uh, some of the restrictions on uh, uh, smokes... Uh, smoke cessation programs, mm -hmm. and including the nicotine replacement, the patch, the uh, gum, and so on, uh, have 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 had no basis in reality, mm -hmm. and that there are ways in which we could help people like Paul to to deal with what is a very serious addiction. I mean, it's not a question of just stopping doing this. Yeah. It's a question of dealing with all of the side effects of it's, stopping doing and this. And it's not just the physical side effects; it's That's psychological right. side effects too. Anyway, Paul, if you want to stop, you can. Okay. Uh, another quick, and, and quick question, question here, if you don't you, mind. Um, if the kids are, if, if marijuana is made to be, okay, uh, we're not going to put anybody in jail for that. And the kids start smoking and everybody has that same attitude. What's to stop them from moving on to a greater drug like cocaine or heroin what's or, or whatever? Them? What's to stop them now? Well, they know it's illegal. You can talk to them. You can say, look, you know, this is bad. This is what it does. No, you can go to in jail. In fact, it's the opposite, Paul. Because you know. both marijuana and harder drugs are illegal, you'll find them in the same circles. Mm -hmm. And therefore, it's more likely that they can move from one to the other. If you had marijuana legal and, and harder drugs more controlled, mm -hmm. you'd find it much more difficult. But I'm sure you're not suggesting that you would want to go to jail because you smoke. Is that what you're telling us? Well, no. But what I would like, though, is, is for, for my son, if he does take a cigarette, to have somebody scare the heck right out of him so that maybe he think twice about it. Well, take well, him down to the hospital in some <laughs> of the rooms where... The, well, he sees me choking every morning, so well, I'm hoping that's enough. Yeah. Hey, the Lung Association has a, an actual lung that operates that uh, has... Uh, uh, have been a smoker's lung, and that that but, should scare him. Okay. Well, let's it let's hope be. he doesn't learn the hardest way of all by watching you die from it. Exactly. Yeah. Okay then. Thanks for Thanks. the call. Bye bye. I think there's a, another issue too. You know, you talk to smokers. You know, uh, two Wednesdays ago when I wasn't here, I was in Ottawa listening to uh, Reason editor Jacob Solemn speaking on this very subject. It was the day that the government launched its anti-smoking uh, campaign. Mm -hmm. And he was pointing out that what we're not realizing is that, that, for example, with smoking, it was known that smoking was harmful to the health for, for since, since they discovered smoking. And he, he brought out all kinds of literature from yeah, the turn no, of the wait, century no, and before. Wait, I've got to disagree but, with that. But no. that's not my issue. Right. Well, well, I can document it for you. I'll show you the book. But, but the, his issue was that most people, you can tell them everything you want about what's bad about X drug, but they like it. You know, and, 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 and the thing is, that's not going to stop them. But, but you know, those who want to sell it, including tobacco companies and including traffickers in hard drugs, will convince people that it isn't going to be harmful and that that's all a myth. You know, I don't think they're doing any convincing at all. I don't think they're saying well, it's not going to hurt you. I've never seen cigarette They, they certainly have. Reynolds, uh, they've been convicted in the United States about lying to people about the effect of smoking. And, and, what, and what was the are, lie? The what, lie was that it wasn't addictive. And that lie per perpetrated right up until, I think it was 1985. So they, ran an ad, they actually ran an ad that said smoking is not they, addictive? They, they put reports out to try and keep the, uh, the uh, medical officers of health from coming down on them that said it wasn't addictive. And they, they funded so-called research to prove mm -hmm. that it wasn't addictive. That went on until the mid-80s. 
And they've now been. I think the point. Well, see, if that's the case, that's, a, that's an issue of legitimate fraud. The point is with yeah. the, with the kids, though, they don't care about that. They don't care if it's a dick. I had a young well, person phone me the other day in the show. No, but I had a young person phone the other day and said, "I don't care. I forget what it was," but said, "I'm too young to worry about that." And I mean, that's the attitude. You know, or you go into a doctor's office and it's it happened to everybody else, you know, not me. Yeah. How the smoker reacts to the picture of the gray lung, and it says nine. It says one out of ten people who smoke heavily each day will get lung cancer. Well, the other message is nine out of ten won't. Yeah. So people are planning.